Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. You're listening to On the Environment, a podcast series from the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy. For more information, visit the website at envirocenter.yale.edu. Hi, my name is Ivana Andrade. I'm a master's student at the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies. Today, I'm talking with Glenn Hurowitz. Glenn is currently the managing director of Climate Advisors, where he's taken an international lead on ending deforestation for commodity agriculture. In the last year, Glenn has played a major role in getting the world's biggest agribusinesses, like Cargill, Wilmar International, and Kellogg, to adopt policies that will eliminate deforestation throughout their entire global supply chain. We'll be talking about his recent headlines and success and what this means for forests around the world, but also about issues with the industry's use of the word sustainability and how much we can trust their assurances for change. It's a pleasure to talk with you, Glenn. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Great to be uh, talking to the L community as, a, as an alumnus. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's great. Um, so, yeah, t- 2014 was a pretty remarkable year for you. Um, I was hoping you could tell me a little bit about your recent success in working with large agricultural suppliers um, to reduce, if not eliminate, deforestation from palm oil production in particular. And, you know, more specifically, what do some of these agreements uh, involve and, and how are they starting to be implemented? Yeah, it really has been an extraordinary year, and you know, we feel we are uh, taking historic steps to break the link between agricultural expansion and deforestation. Uh, I don't think we can underestimate the extent to which uh, one of our civilization's uh, founding myths, in some ways, is that uh, the ex- expansion of civilization requires conversion of diverse natural ecosystems to monocultures that serve only man. And as you said, in 2014, we're really starting to change that paradigm. Uh, It started with Wilmar International, which is Asia's biggest agribusiness company, uh, adopting a no deforestation, no peat, no exploitation policy. Uh, It's really groundbreaking. It says that uh, neither they nor their 800 suppliers will clear uh, high-carbon stock forests, ultra-carbon-rich ecosystems known as peatlands, um, or abuse human rights. Uh, and that's a huge change for the palm oil industry, which uh, historically has been the leading driver of deforestation and peatland clearance in Southeast Asia. Uh, it's one. It's a globally significant uh, emitter of greenhouse gases, uh, and it's also been associated with human rights abuse and shady business operations. So the fact that, that Wilmar uh, took this big step um, has really changed the game. And once Wilmar took that action, and uh, consumer companies like Kellogg's, you mentioned Nestle, Unilever, and others uh, pressured their the big agricultural suppliers to do the same, uh, we actually got pretty much the whole rest of the industry to sign up to these principles as well. So, uh, a, uh, a little over a year ago, um, before we started this campaign, uh, only five percent of the world's palm oil was covered by no deforestation sourcing. Now that's ninety-six percent. Uh, there's a lot of implementation work still to do, which we can talk more about. Um, we've got to make sure that all 800 of those suppliers are actually in compliance, and as I'm sure you can imagine, uh, that's a huge task spanning both the archipelago of Indonesia, Malaysia, Africa, and South America. Uh, and now we have to make sure that those com- commitments are implemented uh, for other commodities that also drive deforestation, like soy and cattle in South America, uh, and sugar and rubber in Africa. 
So in some ways, the work that you're doing, you're hoping is um, offers a demonstration for other industries. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, it always was our goal, uh, not just to change the palm oil industry, although that was what we talked about the most in our, our Forest Heroes campaign, which is the, the public face of our campaign, um, but really to, to make this uh, paradigm shift in agriculture more broadly. Uh, one of the reasons why it's possible to upend this fundamental assumption that we've had in civilization about the, the need that, you know, the idea that the only way civilization expands is, is through uh, conversion of forests and other native ecosystems, is that there are now uh, over 100 million hectares of degraded lands that are available for planting across the tropics. So companies and, and uh, agri other agricultural producers can actually continue to expand production without sacrificing forests. Uh, and, and Brazil was really the pioneer uh, in doing this. Um, they, as a result of global campaigns, kind of like the ones where we've been running now, um, in 2006, uh, the, the big supermarket chains pressured um, their suppliers of soybeans and beef to eliminate deforestation from the Amazon. And as a result of that, uh, the big ag traders wanted to please their customers. And so uh, they then put pressure on their suppliers, the growers uh, across the Amazon, and they implemented what's known as the, the soy moratorium. It was dramatic success. Uh, deforestation for soy in the Amazon went from 25% of Amazon deforestation to 0.25% in just three years. Uh, there's been similar success in the cattle sector. And as a result, Brazil has actually, uh, re by reducing deforestation by three quarters since its peak in 2004, they've actually reduced climate emissions by way more than any other country in the world. It's the world's biggest climate success story. Not that many people know about it, but it is uh, really important, and it is a model for what we'd like to see around the world, whether we're talking about the Paradise Forests of Southeast Asia, uh, the Congo Basin in Africa, or uh, other parts of Latin America where this approach to protecting forests has not yet taken off. That's really impressive. I, I wanted to draw attention really quick to uh, this figure you mentioned, this 100 million um, uh, hectares of, of degraded land. And is that, is that land that you're hoping um, will be used instead of by, by some of these suppliers and growers instead of turning up uh, fresh forest land? Is that what, what the idea is there? That, that's exactly right. You know, we, we've got to protect uh, the forests we have left uh, around the world. Unfortunately, there's just not enough of them. In, in many places, uh, more than half the forest has been cleared. Um, and, you know, I, I just got back from Borneo recently, uh, and there is, in, in many places, no forest left. It's just been all been cleared for palm oil plantations uh, and, and public paper. Um, but, yeah, there is this tremendous opportunity to plant on these degraded lands. And one of the things that, you know, was was instrumental to our success in persuading companies to adopt and start implementing these commitments uh, was the availability of that land. Uh, we also had studies showing that they could actually make greater return, financial returns by planning on degraded land uh, rather than clearing forest as had been their normal practice. Um, and that was persuasive as well. Of course, you know, the other key element to success uh, in these campaigns was the fact that um, students and consumers uh, across the United States and around the world uh, pressured big consumer companies like Kellogg's, like Dunkin' Donuts, uh, Krispy Kreme, uh, Mars, and uh, Colgate Palmolive and other users 
of palm oil uh, to make sure that the palm oil they were getting was not associated with deforestation. Those companies really responded to that because it hits, you know, struck such a chord with people who, who don't want the tigers and orangutans and elephants and rhinos that live in these forests and the few that remain to go extinct. Uh, and they did, certainly didn't want these brands that they love to be driving deforestation in such a huge way. And so uh, that pressure through the supply chain was ultimately what, what created this change. But it was that was the the push, but the pull was the idea that you could expand expand profitably uh, on degraded land. And and in Brazil, they've actually even as they've had these dramatic reductions in deforestation, they've actually increased agricultural production of soy and cattle year on year. So they've broken the link between economic growth and deforestation. Uh, you can look at it even more broadly and say they've broken the link between economic growth and pollution. We actually think that this model that's been pioneered in the agriculture and forestry sector can be spread to the energy sector. Uh, you know, we don't we can grow energy use through clean energy and energy efficiency and energy conservation. Uh, and it's just it's it's a matter of political will, uh, but the economics are certainly there. So, talking a little bit again about this this whole paradigm shift um, that you're referring to. Um, what is the best kind of corporate motivation that environmental environmentalists can hope for? Financial motivation is certainly a huge part of it. Uh, and I think for these businesses, they need to be assured that uh, acting in a responsible manner will also uh, you know, make them money. Um, they're, they're in business to make money, and uh, they find it difficult to do things that uh, are not in their self-interest. Um, so our, you know, we saw our task in many ways as making it in their self-interest uh, to protect forests and reduce emissions more broadly. Uh, that meant that we wanted to make it a condition of global market access that companies were acting in an environmentally responsible manner. Um, so we wanted to make sure that a palm oil company or a soybean company that was engaged in deforestation just wouldn't be able to sell their products on the global market. Uh, so that, you know, I think you, you in some ways, the self-interest motivation um, is the most enduring. Uh, and, and so um, we don't have to rely on the goodness of the executives that we work with. Um, you know, some of them are good and some of them really do want to make a change. Uh, but they could be replaced in future years. And so uh, we want to make sure there's, a, there's an enduring financial incentive. Uh, I would say that uh, some of the leaders in the agricultural sector uh, have been open-minded about changing the way they do business. Um, Kwak Kong Hong, who's the CEO of Wilmar, is an example of that. Um, you know, when I first flew to Singapore uh, for our first meeting, uh, when I got there, he delivered a 15-minute rant <laughs> at me about how unfair he felt NGO environmental campaigns had been. Uh, he, he felt that they had really tarred his and others' work, that really they were just contributing to the development of the world. Um, and I thought, I can't believe I've flown 24 hours to listen to this. But once Kong Hong had uh, gotten that off the chest, he was actually very open-minded about engaging about how you could protect forests. There were huge forest fires sweeping Southeast Asia then, driven by deforestation for palm oil and other commodities. The haze from those fires uh, had shut down Singapore. Flights were canceled. Children couldn't go to school. Uh, people with asthma suffered. And it was a big scandal. And I think he woke up to the severity of the issue. Um, he 
wanted and, and what we talked about, and I think what he wanted to do was not just be part of Asia's economic success story, but also be part of addressing the, the huge environmental challenges that they've created both for the region and the world. Uh, he told me about how they had his his family also owns the Shangri-La luxury hotel chain, and he told me about how his niece uh, started watching National Geographic and became really concerned about the fate of sharks that were being uh, consumed for shark fin soup at hotel banquets across Asia. Uh, and she talked to her uncle and and her father about this issue and said, "Why do we serve shark fin soup?" Uh, and as a result of that, Shangri-La actually became the first hotel chain to eliminate shark fin soup from the menu. He said, it cost us money, but we did it anyway. And so I do think that there was a, a real motivation to do things right uh, and and create a positive legacy for the world. But Kong Hung was always clear, as as have been the CEOs of Cargill and Bungi and, um, and, and the Indonesian producers, that as much motivation as they have to do the right thing, in order for it to be sustainable and successful, uh, it has to be financially sustainable as well, uh, and that it has to be a system that applies to their competitors also. Uh, and so we really took on the task of getting the other big palm oil companies, the other big soy companies, uh, to comply with the same policies with great urgency. And, and we're really happy now that you know 96% of the palm oil industry is covered, and we're hoping to get to that progress over the next couple of years if we can get people involved all around the world in doing that. Uh, so we can really spread this revolution. In building this movement, who, other than American uh, university students, uh, who will you, who else will you be relying on? Well, it really depends on on the specifics of the campaign. Uh, when when we uh, focused on Kellogg's, uh, we organized a whole range of different constituencies. Um, Kellogg's had a joint venture with Wilmar. And so, uh, which which at that time had not committed to do what we were hoping they would do. And so our Forest Heroes Camp um, went out on the ground in Michigan and recruited Michigan citizens uh, to take action. We went, we talked to Kellogg's employees to say, why why is your company in bed with uh, this company that's engaged in, in vast deforestation? Um, we also, uh, you know, we, we asked citizens all over Michigan to put up lawn signs uh, asking what would Tony say, referring to Kellogg's mascot, Tony the Tiger. Uh, and we organized big rallies. Um, we engage in a lot of online activism. We have a, um, you know, our website is forestheroes.org, but we have a, a partner online corporate campaign organization called Some of Us uh, that <clears throat> did a lot of work to get hundreds of thousands of people uh, in the United States and around the world to, to engage. One of the other interesting constituencies that we've worked with is investors, uh, both in Wilmar and uh, some of the other big ag companies, as well as the consumer companies. Uh, one of the key moments <clears throat> in our campaign was when uh, Green Century Capital Management, uh, which is an environmentally oriented investor, uh, went on an earnings call that the CEO of Kellogg's had. Uh, and she, there was a lot of questions about you know, why their profit was up or down, but she asked a question about the risk to their brand and uh, as a result to shareholder value from having a joint venture with a company that was then as notorious as Wilmar. Uh, 
there was a Bloomberg reporter on the call, and he wrote a story about this, focusing not so much on Kellogg's earnings, but on this controversy. And that was one of the things that helped raise the attention for Wilmar. We also worked with investors representing trillions of dollars in assets around the world who were in, invest in Wilmar, and they put pressure on the company as well. And we've had similar dynamics with, with others. I think with Wilmar, because they had a, in, in, you know, were open-minded, um, that gave them the opportunity to show that this is financially viable uh, and defend it to, to all their investors. Uh, so I think working with a really wide range of constituencies, uh, everybody from you know grassroots activists up to uh, the, the the titans of global finance, uh, is necessary to create such a huge change. And it seems to me like a lot of this pressure is made effective by the reality that not paying attention to uh, environmental and human injustices does ultimately affect the bottom line, that there are financial implications for not attending to these issues. You no, know, that, that's absolutely right. I think, though, you can't necessarily rely on every company or every government having that realization on their own. You often need public pressure and a process of education uh, to persuade them of that or to show them that. And, uh, and to some extent, you need to create that dynamic. Um, you know, palm oil companies were making kind of ridiculous levels of profit for a long time by clearing vast areas of forest. Uh, there were huge externalities, of course, you know, both to the climate, to the local environment, to species extinction, to the, the indigenous communities that were being kicked off their lands, to the, the workers that, you know, operated in unsafe conditions very often. But they were, uh, you know, they say the only thing more profitable than palm oil is opium. And uh, until you know, our campaigns and our colleague organization campaigns created a fundamental economic shift where there was a very clear barrier to global market access if you were engaged in deforestation. Uh, I, I think those companies were willing to continue on that track for a very long period of time. So it was, you had to both create that reality and then persuade persuade the targets of the reality. So turning really quickly to this whole issue of implementation. I, I'm sure you've seen lots of agreements just not enter any type of implementation phase, but I'm curious about your experience with the ones that did enter implementation and were successful over multiple years or even decades. So there's, there's been a variety of, um, you know, voluntary private sector initiatives, uh, and, you know, in across the world. Um, you know, there's staples uh, committed to using a percentage of recycled paper um, in, in Canada, uh, a lot of the companies have committed to protecting the Great Barrier Rainforest. Um, and I think what, and, and now we're seeing in the agricultural sector, the you know, Brazilian soy moratorium, uh, and, and now in Southeast Asia, the, the, palm, the transformation of the palm oil industry. I think the, the key to successful implementation is uh, twofold. One, transparent implementation, and two, uh, government involvement. So uh, we're really excited because uh, just the other day at, at Davos at the World Economic Forum, Wilmar announced that it's putting the identities of all 800 of its suppliers uh, online, and, and people will be able to access those. And that's a revolution for agricultural traders who, who generally thrive on opacity. They don't reveal who their suppliers are. Uh, but people increasingly want to know where their food comes from uh, and how it was produced, and that it was produced in a manner consistent with their values. So companies are more willing to provide transparency even where before they saw that as creating commercial liability. 
uh, I think government involvement is absolutely essential, particularly over the long term. You know, we we certainly have been the authors to some extent of of this strategy of of um, getting private sector to make commitments, but there's a real risk that if you rely only on the private sector, the progress won't last. Uh, you know, as great as Wilmar might do, um, there could be new pressures on the land and other companies that uh, start threatening it. So we need to create a level playing field, and we need to have those that these these laws and these policies have the power of government to enforce them. Uh, so we really hope that this private sector transformation can reshape the politics of forest nations around the world. Where you ha We want to make sure that the companies that were once lobbying to weaken forest governance and law enforcement uh, are now actually lobbying to create a level playing field and have the responsible policies that they've adopted apply much more widely. So that and that's happening. Um, it, unbelievably, the Indonesia Chamber of Commerce is now actually leading the lobbying effort uh, for the palm oil and pulp and paper companies who are historically involved in deforestation to persuade the Indonesian government to uh, change some of its policies that have driven deforestation uh, and improve governance across the board. Uh, that's really paying dividends. We even saw the government of Liberia. Uh, in September, um, in, in an agreement that they made with the government of Norway, uh, announced that Liberia's policy is now that any commodity company operating in the country has to adhere to Wilmar's policy. So this was this we were really happy when this happened because it was like our theory of change, uh, you know, come to life, where they explicitly referenced the the company that we'd been most focused on uh, policy as as what as their own government policy. And so you can really see it all over the world, the private sector has huge influence on governments. Maybe that's not right uh, in, all, in all cases, but um, it's, it is nonetheless a fact. And so if you can create a different private sector dynamic, then you can get the government on board. And, and that's, um, uh, you know, I think essential for, for enduring progress. That's such a fascinating turn that all of a sudden a company is the source of, of a national policy um, that must have made you guys feel pretty, pretty awesome. Yeah, it did, and we really want to work with Norway and and other governments, including the U.S. government, to expand that model uh, to other countries in Africa, in particular. Um, you know, Liberia, uh, as part of agreeing to a broad set of forest reforms, uh, is being given um, financial aid by by Norway to help them do that, uh, and so we think. You know, in, in developing countries, providing some kind of positive financial incentive can also be really helpful. Uh, and so we're we're working on that. You know, I would say I, I don't want to suggest, however, that you know, in all cases, you first need to have corporate support before you can get government policy to change. Uh, I think in the United States, you see there are entrenched interests uh, that just don't want to change or move in a responsible environment. I don't think that we're necessarily going to succeed in getting. You know, ExxonMobil uh, or Chevron to say we're not going to invest any more in fossil fuels. That's that's only going to come, I suspect, through government regulation, and that is only going to come in turn through organizing of people who you know essentially oppose what the oil industry is doing. So one one last question, uh, and just calling on on you a little bit um, as a person in all of this these processes and negotiations. This, I can imagine, can be a, a really tiring 
uh, thing to do. You know, you're going after these corporations, and you're you're really work, trying to work with them to to reach a more uh, positive and equitable result. I'm curious what what keeps you doing this. You know, what keeps you um, keeps you going. Yeah, well, it's it's not for the faint of heart, uh, and it's not for the easily tired either. Um, you know, the the work often involves a lot of travel. But the thing that keeps me motivated, and I think this is true for a lot of people who uh, work for the environment, uh, is that you get to take your conscience to work every day. Uh, you know, I, I feel really proud of the work we're doing. Uh, it's, of course, all the more gratifying when we have big successes like we have been recently. Um, you know, and, and those, you know, it's not every day that we have such a big transformative success. And, you know, I know I worked a lot on, on climate, passing climate legislation in Congress, and, of course, that, that effort didn't succeed. But, um, you know, you, if, if you feel like you're fighting the good fight uh, and pursuing really big, exciting goals uh, that you feel passionate about and invested in, uh, it, it provides fuel uh, to keep going. Uh, you know, I think about the, the fact that there's only 400 Sumatran tigers left, and, you know, if we can save them, that's something to be proud of. I think about the fact that, uh, you know, the work we're doing, uh, we hope will reduce global emissions by five gigatons. Uh, I, I think about the, the, you know, hundreds of thousands of workers and, and women who, across um, ag- global agriculture who now have uh, much better workplace protections. Um, so, it, you know, you want, if you can keep your eyes on the prize, I think that really helps keep you motivated and keep you going. Well, I will definitely be keeping an eye on what happens with these agreements over the next year and also really keeping my fingers crossed for you and and your team. Thank you so much, Glenn, for taking the time to to talk with me today. Thanks. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Take care. Take care.